Welcome to the latest episode of Your Wealth with Gemma Dale, a podcast series designed to help you create, grow and protect your wealth. Hi and welcome to this episode of Your Wealth. I'm Gemma Dale, NABTRADE's Director of SMSF and Investor Behaviour. One of the biggest global events of this year is the US election, which will occur in November. Now, generally, an election year in the US has significant implications for markets and the world anytime. But in the midst of a pandemic where the US has incurred 200,000 deaths already, it's even bigger. And at least one of the candidates is many things, but he's definitely not boring. So to talk about the likely outcome of the election and its potential impact on global markets, today I'm joined by Rodrigo Cattrall, who's a senior FX strategist in the NAB Global Research Team. Rodrigo, thanks so much for joining me. Hi, Gemma. Thank you for inviting me. Rodrigo, uh, I've said that US elections have a big impact, but maybe I'm wrong. Can you tell us what sort of impacts US elections generally have on markets to start with? Yeah, so I, I, I think that's a great question to start with because um, it depends on, on sort of the type of investor that you are. So long-term investors, for instance, when you look at the history of elections, particularly in modern times, so say from 1970s and so on, uh, markets tend to be driven by structural changes, by cyclical factors. Um, and when it comes to the elections, they don't really tend to have sort of longer lasting effects. Um, there are some instances where, you know, the introduction of big significant uh, policy changes can have an impact. Uh, arguably, President Trump um, had a positive impact from the corporate tax changes. Uh, many presidents tried to do changes in terms of corporate tax prior to him and were not successful. So those changes can, can have a bit more of a significant effect. So from a long-term investor perspective, um, of, more often than not, um, elections don't have an impact. Um, but when you have big, big sort of uh, changes or big policy changes presented by candidates, then there's something that is worth keeping an eye on. This time around as well, um, it, it's also worth noting that in that regard, Biden has a significant sort of fiscal agenda and has the potential to, to, to be significant in terms of the impact. Uh, and I suppose from a short-term perspective, um, when it comes to the scenario of a president being up for re-election, and when the contest looks very tight, then in those scenarios, uh, equity markets and risk assets in general tend to be quite volatile going into the election. Um, so in this scenario, we, we seem to sort of be playing out that, that scenario where this time around we, we're seeing a little bit of volatility. And in our view, it's likely that we will see an increase in volatility in markets as we head towards the election. Yeah, we're certainly seeing a little bit at the moment. So for those of us who are not super close to the American political system, you know, we hear a fair bit about it actually in the Australian media, but can you give us a rundown of the current makeup of the US government? We hear about Trump all the time, obviously, but you know, how are the Senate and the House comprised? You know, how much power does the president actually have? You know, where are we currently sitting? So um, I suppose the, the interesting thing to notice is that when President Trump was elected, he had a, a majority both in the Senate and in the House. And 2018, that flipped so that the House became a Democrat House. Um, and then the Senate retained that Republican uh, majority. So that has important implications in terms of the ability of the president to uh, have changes, particularly on the domestic side, on domestic policy, and particularly in terms of the fiscal side. Um, so in that regard, 
what we've seen, particularly in the last two years, that President Trump has been unable to instigate significant change in that regard. It pretty much goes down to the Congress. And, and if anything, the debate that is going on at the moment in terms of the fourth round of fiscal stimulus is really very much a, a Congress decision. Uh, and, and at the moment, uh, the Democrats being supporting in the House, of course, are going for a big, big spending plan. And Republicans are, you know, are up for some spending plan, but in significantly smaller sort of magnitude. And that's exactly where the debate is at the moment. And, and, and that essentially means that policy changes are much slower to come by. Uh, and the president, in terms of influencing, has a limited influence in that regard. Now, in terms of the president and foreign policy, he has, or in this case, President Trump has the ability to instigate quite a lot of change. And of course, over his presidency, we've seen an increase in terms of focus on foreign policy and particularly China and, and, you know, the trade tensions that we've seen as well uh, over the past 18 months. So in that regard, it's an important dynamic because whoever is the president, um, you know, come uh, November, whoever gets elected, then the structure of the, the Senate and, and the, the House will be important because it will determine how much ability that president has in order to instigate change. Um, and if it doesn't, then like, for instance, in the case of President Trump being re-elected, our sense is that his focus will shift significantly towards foreign policy. And of course, there's a risk that his sort of, if you like, aggression towards China uh, may increase in, in a second term. That's a really interesting perspective. Just a quick question. So in Australia, you know, the Senate, uh, because they're rolling six years, uh, that senators sit for, you don't have the whole Senate up for election every time. And so often it may be very difficult for a government, even if they're doing really well in the polls, to actually change the composition of the Senate. It's the same in the US? Yes, so that's quite right. So the Senate uh, in the US has 100 seats, um, but this time around, there's only 35 seats up for re-election. And, and, and interestingly, when you see the composition of that, um, is actually 23 seats are Republicans. And uh, and even when you're going to dip even further and you look at this, the seats that are up for the, the more at risk, if you like, uh, the six, the top six that are more at risk are Republican seats. So in, in, in this instance, there's certainly a, a lot riding for Republicans in terms of their ability to, to retain that majority in, in the Senate. Right. So where, what are the polls looking like so far? And I asked that question knowing that the polls were not an accurate representation of how things played out in 2016. But what are they looking like at the moment? Right. So the, the, whenever we get asked this question, uh, one of the first things that we highlight is that uh, very much like in Australia, um, when you go to vote, you actually don't vote for the president. Uh, in the US, there's a electoral college system. So you vote for, so for these colleges and then the colleges eventually are the ones that declare the winner in terms of the president. Now, uh, in that regard, so when you look at the national polls, um, Biden has been uh, on a steady lead of around 7% for, for quite some time now. Uh, but similar to Australia, that is, can be misleading. And in fact, it is misleading because as much as you think Biden is the popular vote, uh, that's not how the president gets elected. So, so when you see the composition of the electoral colleges, then the contest looks a lot more interesting. Um, to win, you need 270 votes. Um, and at the moment, based on statistics and, and sort of the polling, um, Biden has technically around 280 votes. So technically he could be winning. But um, only around 
203, 205 of those seats are certain certain seats. The other ones are what you call leaning or potentially toss-ups, toss-up votes. So when you look at that uh, and when you look at the experience, particularly of President Trump uh, against Hillary Clinton, is that many of those states that were leaning towards Democrats actually shifted when it came to, to voting day and went to, to Trump. So unless you have a lead of 10 points, any, any lead in any states below 10 points means that statistically it could actually go either way. And, and that's why this time around, as much as Biden is on the lead, um, it's hard to say with a high degree of certainty that he is actually likely to win. That's so interesting. I know plenty of people have talked about the fact that Hillary Clinton actually got 3 million more votes than Trump in the last election. Mm-hmm. And it yeah. made no difference whatsoever. They lost quite badly in the end. So it's... Um, it's an interesting system, much like our own. Yes, certainly. And and if anything, um, the other thing that is important to note, uh, now that you bring up Hillary Clinton into all of this, is that when you think about her experience, um, and around this time, just just you know just under uh, you know six weeks essentially into the election, uh, Hillary Clinton was winning, and uh, in terms of the polls, she was doing really well. She had a decent lead, uh, but then of course this was well before the TV debates. And it was also before that WikiLeaks, um, the, you know, the, the private server uh, that instigated a, a lot of sort of accusations of wrongdoing. And uh, if anything, Trump used that and the TV debates and essentially completely took control of the agenda. Instead of talking about, you know, policy changes in the healthcare system and so on that Hillary Clinton wanted to talk about, uh, President Trump was essentially saying, well, I don't care. You're a crook. I just want to put you in jail. And and that's how the agenda got shifted, and, and the support shifted significantly towards uh, President Trump. So um, this time around, uh, the, the big TV debates are beginning on the 29th of September. Then we have another one on the 15th of October, and the last one on the 22nd of October. So uh, knowing President Trump, now we know now, maybe the risk of this unknown quantity is slightly different. Um, but uh, needless to say, we think that those debates are likely to, to have a big impact in terms of the polling uh, and, and the favoring of, of one president or the one candidate or the other. So it's very important that typically when you come to election time and even in Australia, you know, whoever's leading six or eight weeks uh, is kind of interesting, but really, it really matters what happens from here until election day. Yeah, it is amazing. I mean, it's easy to forget these things, but um, Bill Shorten was considered to be a shoe in right? That's right. Labor yeah. lost the uh, unlosable election. It's um, it's amazing. So <laughs> my next question was going to be, what do you see as the big risks to the polls and the predictions? But you've talked about that somewhat already. Um, what do you see as the big policy differences between the two parties? You've got two parties that are... One of the things I find most interesting is that Republicans, in inverted commas, or people who identify as Republicans, have a completely different view of how uh, the pandemic has been handled relative to how Democrats view it. So even things like a pandemic, which should not be political, um, that people are split along party lines. So what are the policies that really separate them? Yes. So I suppose the first thing to note in this regard is that uh, in terms of information, uh, Biden has provided a lot of information in terms of his policy plans. He's, he talks about this 10-year plan, and essentially what it means is that there's a huge fiscal plan uh, that it means a, a huge amount of spending. Uh, Biden has a lot of focus in terms of healthcare. Um, so overall, just to give you a sense of dimension, the, the 10-year plan talks about a $7 trillion plan, 
uh, where healthcare is around 2.25 trillion of expenditure, infrastructures are around 1.3. Um, and importantly, he's also talked about this idea of green energy, which over and above is potentially around an extra three trillions in terms of expenditure plan. So I suppose that the big policy differences is a huge amount of, of money that Biden wants to spend. And then the other implication of that is like, how does he actually plan to fund this? So um, of the seven to nine trillion of expenditure over the next nine years, um, or 10 years, I should say, uh, Biden's plan is to partly fund that through a reversal of the tax cut corporation that President Trump introduced in, in his first term. So that is the one big factor. Um, and then, of course, the other, the other big uh, sort of, uh, if you like, focus from, from Biden is, is regulation. Um, so he, he has an agenda in terms of uh, bringing back some regulation in the financial sector. Big tech is also being a big focus on, and if anything, that antitrust sort of investigation is already, you know, taking place. So we should expect some regulation coming for, for big tech. Uh, but under Biden presidency, it's likely that this, this big regulation will, will occur faster and it probably be more meaningful. And, and of course, clean energy is, is the other big factor. So uh, he has a big plan in that regard, and there will be tighter controls in terms of um, you know, emission and, and, and also the fracking and, and, and new energy as well. And, uh, and lastly, of course, is the healthcare sector. So regulation is, again, another big, big, big factor in terms of uh, the distinction between a Biden presidency and what President Trump is likely to do. The other, of course, aspect of that is that um, President Trump hasn't provided a lot of sort of plans in terms of what else he wants to do. He's talked about uh, infrastructure spending. Uh, he's still talking about some sort of tax reform, which means more cuts, um, uh, whilst at the same time, the focus on China and trade policies are probably likely to be a bigger, bigger, bigger issue, if you like, uh, under Trump presidency. You've done a bit of work looking at how uh, the phase one trade deal is going at the moment. Do you mind giving an update on that? Yes. So, well, I suppose the interesting thing of all of this is that uh, we've had a trade deal agreement. It's got a phase one agreement. Uh, within that phase one agreement, um, there's a lot of uh, buying, essentially, that needs to occur or that China has agreed to to uh, to buy from, from the US in, in order to balance that sort of fiscal, that trade deficits that exist between the two countries. The pandemic has come along and has essentially derailed the plan to some extent. Um, and of course, the other aspect of this is that in terms of the trade deal itself, is that the objectives were defined on a yearly basis. So we, we're still not towards the end of the trade deal phase one aspect in terms of the commitments that China has made. Uh, the commentary coming from President Trump is, uh, and, other, and other members of his, his government is that um, China is delivering. But the reality is that when you look at the numbers, China is well behind in terms of the objectives that were set out uh, uh, during uh, the, 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 the trade deal negotiations. So just to give you a sense in terms of manufacturing, we were talking about something around 80 billion in terms of manufacturing. Um, we're probably around 24 five to 30 at the moment. Agriculture is the other big one. There was around 35 billion objective. And at this stage, we probably, on a generous aspect, we're probably getting close to like the 15 billion mark. So the, China is well behind in terms of its objectives. Now, 
some leeway is likely to be given because of the pandemic. Um, but after the election, there's certainly the prospects that uh, uh, trade negotiations will become back in focus, regardless of who the president is. Um, and, the, and the fact that China is probably very unwilling and likely to talk about the phase two, which implies you know, structural changes in terms of the economy uh, and even in terms of the way you do business. Uh, for for uh, foreign investors in in China, China is very kind of reluctant to to change its, its economic system. So that means that the prospects for more tensions in the second term during Trump or under Biden presidency look very likely in 2021. That's really interesting because I think a lot of people haven't necessarily uh, kept up to date. Yeah, there's a lot of rhetoric and there's certainly a lot of posturing, but we've not necessarily done a great job of keeping up with the numbers and whether anything's changed a great deal. Uh, any uh, information or data on how Trump is planning to fund further tax cuts and sort of his expansionary plans? Well, I suppose that there's a little bit of debate there in terms of part, part of the, the financing, uh, to some extent, comes from a generous projections in terms of the impact those, those tax and, and policies uh, will have on, on growth. So, um, to some extent, if you project your, your debts and you project inflation and you project how much your economy is going to grow, then you're also able to project how quickly you're going to be able to pay that debt. Um, so th there's a little bit of debate around there. But, uh, but I suppose that the bigger emphasis that we put on this is that um, a President Trump's second term is very likely to be in a scenario where he doesn't have a majority in the House and he may well retain a majority in the Senate. Um, so in that scenario, it's a sort of a lame duck situation where any policies that he likely wants to implement will be really out of his hands because it will eventually be debated in Congress. So as much as he has an infrastructure spending and even a tax cuts uh, plan, um, it really will be very hard for him to, to implement. Whereas for us, the likelihood that Biden wins is, is like likely to be alongside this blue wave scenario where, you know, he has the majority not only in the House, but also in the Senate. So policy change is more likely in a, under a Biden presidency, whereas a sort of a stalemate in terms of policy change is, is very much likely in, under the Trump policy uh, presidency. Oh, so that leads beautifully into my next question, which is, you, you know, I would assume, given what you've told me so far, that you're actually preparing research across a variety of scenarios. There's no point planning for one particular outcome, given that there's quite a few that are reasonably likely. Could you talk us through what the implications would be of a Democrat win, to your mind? Yes. And I suppose uh, when we talk about these scenarios, uh, one of the scenarios that we actually need to talk about is, is the outcome itself. When When is it going to occur? So... Um, uh, at the moment, we know that the postal voting has become very popular because of the pandemic. People want to avoid crowds and so on. So the outcome of the election, given that those postal votes are not going to be counted in, in, in the majority of the instances, they're not going to be counted until election day, means that we may not actually get an outcome uh, uh, on, on the 3rd of November. Now, the other aspect of that is that it also brings in, in, in the prospect that many of these votes could be contested, um, particularly in a scenario where some of the states, the voting outcome is very close, then there's potential for legal challenges. And of course, we've had President Trump himself coming out saying that he, he thinks that the, the election itself could well be decided by the Supreme Court uh, later in the year, if not 
early next year. So the, from a market's perspective, the outcome itself or the timing of the outcome is an unknown timing because um, there is the risk that uh, it may take a little bit longer to, to know who actually won. Now, in terms of the scenarios, to some extent, in terms, so to us, a Biden win, as, as we said, is very likely to be with a blue wave, and that has implications in terms of the ability to, to, to instigate all the changes that he wants to have. Whilst in, in the outcome of uh, President Trump, uh, the, you know, it's very likely that um, he, he will have a divisions within the House and, 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 and the Senate, and potentially the prospects that even the Senate may not, no go, may not retain, may not be retained by Republicans. So a lame back scenario looks more likely than not in terms of President Trump. Now, for, for markets, um, I suppose there, there's a couple of things to note. Now, for when President Trump was elected, we had a lot of volatility itself because it was, to some extent, a bit of a surprise that he won. Um, but we did see uh, the equity market perform quite well. And we saw in particular financial sectors, healthcare and materials perform quite well for different reasons. Tax reform is coming. Also, the, the prospects that healthcare was going to be hammered because of, you know, more reform coming and the uh, Hillary Clinton environment uh, was priced, and then it, that pricing got reversed. So I suppose during an election day, uh, day or on the day that we finally have known the outcome of the, press, the, the, the election, we're likely to see quite a lot of volatility in, in equity markets as this repricing occurs. Um, to some extent, the, the prospects of this tax reversals uh, place to the view that the ones that were the winners uh, initially in the President Trump uh, presidency are likely to be the losers in an initial Biden presidency. Um, and then the other aspect as well is, of course, what Biden does. So in a scenario where President Biden wins the presidency, um, the order of play will matter significantly. Uh, our sense is that because the economy is underperforming, there's huge output gaps and unemployment is elevated, Biden's focus is likely to be more on spending than on corporate tax initially. So his focus is likely to be on the infrastructure spending, plans for clean energy and so on, uh, whereas the focus about reform, regulation and tax uh, and tax hikes are, are probably going to be part of a second phase once the economy is in a better place. Um, but if he was to go hard straight away in terms of lifting the corporate tax, that, that would be a significant source of volatility for the equity market, given the uncertainties of the, the state of the economy. So auto play will be very important in that regard. That's really interesting. Uh, so a uh, difficult one for investors to have a view on, and I imagine um, anyone who's got a strong view uh, has probably already taken a position. Are there any other scenarios that you think investors should be concerned about? One that is amazing to me is you, Trump has effectively said this morning, so it's the 24th of September at the moment, uh, that he wouldn't rule out perhaps some violence if things don't go his way, which is, I shouldn't laugh, an astonishing thing for an American president to say. Uh, should people be concerned about that? Is that sort of a, an extreme scenario that might happen? Yes, so I suppose on the on the one extreme scenario, there's this, which is is an increasing risk, I should add, is, is this idea of the contest, contested election, uh, which means that um, even even if you know a, a winner has been declared, then uh, there's the prospects that um, not only from a legal perspective the outcome can be challenged, which goes into a Supreme Court, and that brings in, of course, what is going on at the moment in terms of the scenario where now that uh, with Ruth Ginsburg passing, uh, 
President Trump is looking to nominate a Republican to the Supreme Court, and Amy Barnett is, of course, being been touted as as the the candidate. Uh, she's a, a Catholic and uh, also from the Midwest, which again plays very much towards those states where you know they're contested votes and um, uh, having a, a Christian kind of going into the Supreme Court is regarded as kind of a positive for, for the prospects of President Trump gaining support in the Midwest. Um, but also, what importantly, importantly means that if he was able to, to get a majority there in the Supreme Court, then it may well come to the Supreme Court to decide who the winner is. So this idea of social unrest is not just coming from President Trump and instigating social unrest, but also could well come from, you know, um, the, the, the public feeling outdone or undone by, by a Supreme Court basically deciding rather than a, a voting or electoral process deciding who the next president is. So it's, it's certainly a dynamic that is bubbling in the background and it's something that needs to be kind of be, needs to be considered, particularly in a scenario where the outcome of the election is very narrow. Uh, that in itself would, would instigate more reasons to uh, for President Trump to, to not go out quietly, if you like. Um, if, if he was to win or lose by a huge margin, then it's kind of a bit harder to contest the, you know, the, the, the outcome. Uh, but if it's very close, it certainly raises the prospect for social unrest. Now, I suppose the other scenario that we, we talked about is that we talked about this idea of Biden winning with big margins and, and a blue wave. And what is also probably worth noting there that when it comes to support of the Congress, um, many, many of those supporters, uh, many of the Democrats are moderates. So even if you have a majority in, in the Senate and in the House, it may well be that these moderates will restrict the ability of Biden to be very aggressive in terms of his policies. So again, it's important to see kind of who the winners are uh, and, and the details of those winners, uh, but it certainly plays to, to that scenario that maybe Biden may not be able to do as much as you think, uh, given who, who the senators are, uh, whilst at the same time on the other extreme scenario, which plays to a lot of uncertainty and volatility in markets is, is a scenario where President Trump, uh, you know, decides to aggressively uh, instigate social unrest because he's not happy with the outcome. Yeah, it's an amazing scenario to contemplate, although I feel a bit old. I do remember the hanging Chad. Do you remember the hanging Chad? <laughs> this was Al Gore and George W. Bush. Um, right, same yeah. scenario. It was Florida where the, um, was the final state they needed to count and they were having all sorts of trouble determining whether or not certain votes were, uh, I guess, uh, needed to be uh, legally uh reviewed or not and um, be, yeah that's yeah right. whether they were permitted and the hanging chad for anyone really young who missed this whole thing probably not even really young who missed this was a piece of paper and when it got punched made a little hole in the paper so they punched a hole in it and made a little <laughs> and the little bit that that came out when it was punched was called a chad and there was a question mark over whether or not if the, the little chad was attached or not whether it was legally That's binding right. the hanging chad um so yes uh, we do have a scenario of this before there was no social unrest subsequently or none that um that springs to mind i guess do you have any thoughts for investors who are facing into this situation it's it's a tricky one. I mean, I think your advice at the beginning saying that for long-term investors, elections uh, are not as significant as other sort of uh, major economic changes, I guess. But um, but this is an interesting year, right? It is. And I suppose uh, what we've seen and what we've been telling 
asking uh, our customers is that um, as much as the equity market may not be reflecting that today, when you look at the term structure of the volatility uh, market, uh, there's certainly pricing um, a significant event risk around the, uh, the election period. Uh, and now that pricing, uh, given all this uncertainty, is not just on the one day, but is actually expanded beyond that because of the potential that we may not know the outcome. Now, <clears throat> in sort of, for instance, when you think about the Aussie dollar, the Aussie dollar is a risk-sensitive currency, and typically when you see the spikes in uncertainty and in volatility, the Aussie dollar doesn't perform well. And, and if anything, we're already starting to see a little bit of that with the Aussie dollar uh, and the pressure in, in recent times and the prospects that an election will become a bigger focus for markets as we get closer to election day suggest that the, the Aussie dollar will struggle to perform in, in, in that environment. So, um, so and when you look at the, the term structure of the VIX index in the equity market, the, the equity market is also pricing sort of this, this increase in, in market volatility around that time. So uh, there's certainly, we, we need to be prepared for some turbulence uh, and we're heading towards it. Um, how long would that turbulence last? Maybe a little bit longer than typically uh, under, under president ele elections in the US. So we need to be aware of that. Uh, uh, but in terms of sort of the structural forces of the, the Aussie dollar, when we think about the next 12 to 18 months, for instance, um, we got to remember that the US dollar is facing a big uh, cyclical downturn. We, we had a Fed that is essentially brought down those real rates in the US quite significantly. Uh, and, and that plays to the view that the US dollar is embarked on, on a downturn that is likely to last, you know, potentially 18 months, two years, if not longer. Um, and in that scenario, that's an upward force for the Aussie dollar. Uh, the other aspect, which we obviously haven't touched by, is that they, in, in this global recovery, China is the one leading the recovery. And, and China has made a huge commitment in terms of its infrastructure spending. Um, and in that regard, that means that commodities are likely to be very well supported over the next 12 to 18 months. So once you get through this volatility and you start thinking about, okay, what are the sort of the big macro themes driving currencies, then this big theme on commodities coming from China, the big theme on the dollar weighted down by this um, cyclical downturn, which can get worse if you have an increase in, in borrowing by the government, then place to the view that the Aussie dollar should recover and should start performing again uh, as we head in, in 2021. But certainly volatility near term, and that plays as well, obviously, to, to all risk assets as well. I think that's very useful uh, for investors to keep in the back of, the back of their minds over the next few months. Rodrigo, you and the NAB Markets team produce excellent research and you've got a five-star daily podcast called The Morning Call, which many listeners to this podcast would be aware of. But for those who aren't, how do they keep up to date with what you guys are talking about and, uh, and tune in to what you're talking about? Well, of course, we have the, the morning call, which is available to, to anyone, really. Um, and then you can access it, uh, you know, through many of the um, uh, sites or I'm not sure what is the term that you use for um, um, for the podcast uh, in SoundCloud and Spotify and so on. But uh, I suppose the other thing as well is that uh, many of our research is available for everyone. Uh, but if you are in our client, of course, you can access all our research and um, and also, um, you know, the ability for, for any comments or even seminars and webinars that we do, uh, where we go in a little bit more depth in terms of the discussions of big macro themes. So we'll encourage you to to look into that and, and to touch base with us if you if you want to know more. Rodrigo Catrell from NAB Global Research. Thank you so much for joining us today. 
Great. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening. Also, as always, we love hearing from you. We've received some fantastic feedback. We love getting your questions and thoughts on future topics. So please just email us at yourwealthatnab.com.au and I look forward to talking to you again soon. I'm Gemma Dale. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Your Wealth with Gemma Dale. To stay up to date, please subscribe to this podcast series or email us at yourwealth@nab.com.au. Please note that any advice provided in this podcast has been prepared without taking into account your objectives, financial circumstances or needs. Before acting, you should consider the appropriateness of the information. To find out more, please visit nab.com.au.